How are we all doing? We're good? So, uh, it's, I haven't been here in, in, uh, since Easter, uh, and I have missed you guys. Um, I uh, had, had the week off after and uh, was blessed with an opportunity that I'll tell you about a little bit later. And then uh, last week, I was in Voorhees at the Voorhees campus, and uh, you got to preach twice in Voorhees. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot of work for a preacher. I, I like uh, I like this is one done. All right, you know. So whatever happens at the end of this, I'm done. Pace yourself in Voorhees with two campuses. But uh, so uh, so this morning we are in a series called After Easter, and uh, uh, I want to give just a little bit of um, a background, but some things that we need to know before we read the scripture. When the Bible talks about idol worship. Uh, it can easily, as here in the 21st century, it can easily be something that as we read it in the scripture, it's something we can either simply ignore or we could minimize it because, well, hey, there you are. So, you know, because it's, 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 it's idols, right? It's, we can easily envision that it's someone worshiping this wooden or stone image the Bible seem out of touch in a sense or, or ancient. But I want to try and change that view for us before we read the scripture. I want you to imagine an ancient farmer in ancient times struggling to work out and grow crops on a desert hillside. And I want you to land is another plot of land that is farmed by someone who worships the god Baal. And this worshiper of Baal is growing tomatoes two or three times larger than the tomatoes you're growing in your field. And so as this farmer is growing those tomatoes in that field, as you are that farmer growing those tomatoes in that field, can you imagine the temptation to just place a small image of Baal in hopes that your tomatoes might grow as big as your neighbor's tomatoes. And initially, this farmer, or if you're that farmer, you would have no plan to ever forsake your God, but it's just a tiny piece of wood that happens to make your tomatoes grow bigger, you think. And so in these gentle and subtle ways, the farmer could be led astray until they become this confirmed and unshakable idol worshiper. Now, in the 21st century, it's not much different for us, right? Idols, though, have just become more sophisticated. They're no longer made of wood or they're made of stone. Now they're, uh, uh, they're made of technology in some ways, right? They're no longer blocks of wood or pieces of metal, or maybe they are, but now they're shinier, right? They're computers and phones and, and televisions and electronic marvels that we have all the time with us always on, always there for us. And as I was preparing this message, I would recognize that my wife tells me this all the time, that whenever uh, I'm at home, I'm never really at home. I'm always looking at what's going on at Twitter or what might be happening, who might be texting me, who might need me right now. And so it's that temptation, right? How do we put that away? How do we turn that off? How do we not have that, not worship that thing? And maybe it's not technology, maybe it's things like pleasure, right? I need it, or it's greed, I need more, or it's lust, I need what you have. And so it starts out as small, it starts out as unassuming, but it expands ever so subtly until 
we realize we've become worshipers of those things. Uh, as I thought about this, and as Pastor Jeff and I were preparing these messages, I immediately thought of American Idol and Dancing with the Stars, where the winner is partly selected by, or wholly selected by, popularity. Right? Dial in, call in, I need your votes. So we all have idols, things that we treasure and worship, and or we all want to be idolized. Right? How many followers do I have? How many likes? How many people commented on the picture I just put up? We all want to be idolized, and we all treasure and worship things. So idols may have changed, but we still have these idols. So with all those things in mind, I want us now to read from a story in Acts chapter 17. Now, we're not going to read the whole story. It's actually verses 16 through 34, and I encourage you to read that on your own if you, uh, if you uh, would enjoy doing that. But uh, we're going to read just a few of these verses. What I find interesting about this story in Acts chapter 17, Paul has left Berea, the town earlier in Acts chapter 16. Don't read that yet. Hold on. Don't look at that. Look at me. Don't read. You're cheating. You're going ahead. All right. Don't do that. We're not there yet. Oh, look at that. So much better. See, you can't cheat. All right. So Paul's left Berea in a hurry, and he's now waiting for his companions to arrive in Athens so that they can continue their travels. And what I love about this is that it seems like Athens was almost an aside. This famous chapter in the Bible, the story that Paul tells, it's almost like it wasn't supposed to happen because Paul was in Berea, things were going fine, it seemed, and then he quickly left and is in Athens waiting for his friends to arrive, and this story takes place. So now it's up on the screen, and let me read a few verses to you. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, now a little, thing, little uh, information about Athens, Athens is a small university town, uh, there's about 10,000 people living in Athens at this, uh, in the first century. The city population, though, has been shrinking. Uh, 400 years earlier, Athens is the center of the world. Not so much in the first century, though. Now it's only a shadow of its glory days. And so Paul's waiting for his friends in Athens. It says he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He saw idols everywhere. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the worshipers in Athens were pantheists. They worshipped many gods. As a matter of fact, there were so many gods that a writer by the name of Patronus satirically said this. He was a, he was a writer during Emperor Nero's reign. He said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The town population was shrinking, but the idols were ever growing. So it's easier to find a God than a man. So he's deeply troubled. Paul is deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans were, their belief was that life was all the opposite or were the opposite of the Epicureans. Everything was God's will and we just accept it, okay? So there's these, these differing philosophers all there in Athens. Uh, so he had a debate with some of them. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? And if you didn't figure that out, that was an insult. Babbler, 
was a, uh, a bird. It, it's the same idea as a bird searching for seed. So they were saying this Paul is just running around, just pecking and picking up little ideas and thoughts. He really has no idea what he's talking about. It's just this uninformed ideas. They're accusing Paul of using ideas without knowing what he's talking about. And so they call him a babbler. What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? And others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So verse 22, again, it's up on the screen. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and of one of your altars had an inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. So Paul tells them, hey, you're very religious. You're so religious that you even have a God to an unknown God. So because they're pantheists, their idea was that they want to worship as many gods as possible. So when they would attribute something that happened in nature or something that happened in their life, they would attribute that to a god. And so if they came upon something that happened and they didn't know which god that was, they would attribute it to the unknown god. Just to make sure that they were worshiping every god that possibly could be worshipped. And so Paul sees that and says, hey, I'm going to tell you all about this god that you haven't met yet. I read a study about 10 years ago, and it haunted me and stuck with me. It was about 2008 when I read this. It was an Oxford University professor, and I may have mentioned this before because, like I said, the story stuck with me. Uh, her name is Dr. Olivera Petrovich, and she presented evidence that young children are hardwired to believe in God. And so she studied children in preschools, and she would interview them and have this set interview questions where she would ask them about things that were going on in life and ask them to explain how those things happened. She also focused on areas like Japan and Britain where she felt there was, there was the least amount of opportunity where religious education could influence ideas and thoughts and processes and how they happened in the world. These children attributed these ideas to God. Now, they didn't attribute it to a God, that, a named-faced God like we would, having grown up in any whatever upbringing you may have had if there was religious education. They just assumed it was something, a force that was outside of themselves caused this to take place. She discovered that preschool children use theological concepts to help construct their world and that those constructs developed naturally within them. Her conclusion were wired to worship. We're wired to worship, and we will worship something. We'll seek after that thing. And if given direction, we can find God. Or excuse me, Acts goes on. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so these verses reminded me of our Easter message, where we talked about the resurrection, and that the resurrection can seem foolish to some, right? Some laughed 
at Paul. It can seem intriguing to others. I want some more information, and it can be real to even more. So I want to share with you some thoughts and ideas. I keep, and I'm sorry, I keep walking out of the light. I just realized there's light there, and Jack's going to tell me to stop doing that. So try to stay here. Uh, I want to just share a few thoughts and ideas from this story that uh, I found interesting. And the first one is, uh, and if you're taking notes, write this down. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I am offended by bullhorns. I am offended by bullhorns. Um, you know, if you go to sporting events or if you are anywhere near there are large crowds, it seems that when there are people of faith who like to speak with bullhorns and like to speak in shouts and they're angry. And I am just plain offended by that. I just, I'm just offended by bullhorns. I just, I just think it creates this us versus them mentality. So the other day, I was uh, I had opportunity to be with a group of pastors. It was actually it was kind of a it was kind of just happened. I was I was supposed to meet with a pastor, and when I went to meet with him at his church, uh, there was another pastor and another pastor were present. It's like we sniff each other out or something, and we all end up gathered together somehow. And so I just happened to be in the room with three other pastors, and I was there and. Um, Immediately the conversation turned into how bad culture is and how people who are part of culture are, it just turned into us versus them really quickly. And while no one had a bullhorn, I felt like they had them in their pockets and they just hadn't pulled them out yet. I just was so bothered by that idea of fighting against a culture. I'm offended by bullhorns, I guess. I've noticed that Jesus always seems to show care and concern when talking with people. And Jesus always seemed to be among friends, either friends he had already or friends he was going to make soon. He always seemed to be around friends. And it seemed that when Jesus talked with people, there was a conversation that was taking place. I think Paul demonstrates this here in Acts. It says that he was hanging out and speaking in the synagogues. It says he was in the public square and he was even at the high council when he had this, this uh, most recent conversation that we just read. And it seems like a bullhorn just would be the least effective way. While Jesus and Paul seem to have this way of conversing with people and sharing about their faith. And when we share that faith, it can seem strange, and it can seem unbelievable, and it can seem like we're babbling, and yet it's okay. I know one of the dangers, or one of the fears, not dangers, the fears that we have in sharing faith is that our concern in getting into a conversation, whether it's at work or whether it's in our families, is that what if I don't know what to say? Or what if I say something wrong? Or what if I don't have the answers? Now, I have to tell you up front that I'm a pastor. And so that's, as soon as someone says, what do you do for a living? That's a conversation killer. All right. I do my best to not tell people what I do for a living. So I'll be on the golf course. I'll be with friends or people who are not my friends yet. And I will try not to tell people I'm a pastor for the longest time possible, because once I do, they're not talking to me any longer. 
or they're talking to me in filtered terms. And that bothers me just as much as not talking to me at all. And so my challenge is how can I have a conversation and try to be as real as possible with them? But yet I have all those same fears. What if I don't have the answer to their I don't know how to respond. And so then I was having this thought. Telling my story, I can't go wrong. So I had, uh, the week after Easter, I wasn't here because I had the immense privilege of going to the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta. Yeah, nice, huh? Well, let me tell you, I knew I was going to weasel this story in somehow on the first Sunday I was back, all right? And I will tell this story over and over and a couple times, so get used to it, all right? But it was, it was uh, the, the Masters works with a lottery ticket system. I'm going to tell this really fast. We've been putting, Jim Spindler and I have been putting our names in for the lottery for the last 15 years. The deal we always had is whoever wins, we're taking the other guy. I got tickets. I thought it was a scam. I didn't believe it was for real. I had to go to the actual website and put it in, and I still typed it in on the library computer because I didn't want to do it on my computer because I thought it was a virus. <laughs> Smart, huh? Because I thought there's no way I really won. You can't really win, right? But sure enough, we won tickets, all right? So we went to the Masters. We golfed all the way down. My lovely bride, Kelly, said, how come it takes one day to get back from the Masters? It takes four days to get there. We made it an experience, and I'll tell all those stories too. But on the day we got to go, get this, you don't get to pick your tickets. It's the tickets that they assigned to you. We got Sunday. Yes, Sunday. We were there for Sunday. Now, here's the deal about the Masters. When you get there, it's, it's giant, 360 acres of property, and you want to walk all 360 acres. We walked almost all of it. All morning we walked. We got there at 7 a.m. We walked until 2 o'clock. We just walked everywhere. We saw everything, right? Then you pick a spot where you're going to watch. We sat on the 16th green and watched uh, uh, par three, watched uh, people tee off, and we could see, the, see where the ball landed as well. I was there when Charlie Hoffman hit a hole in one. Wow. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Eagle putt and yet make the birdie putt on 15 because we could see 15 green. Then I watched him on his run tee off make a 30-foot birdie putt for another birdie and be within one stroke of the lead. I just told you about my experience at the Masters. It is just one little piece of all that happened that day. The sad part about the Masters on Sunday for a someone who enjoys golf is you only see one part of it. I saw the 16th, I saw everybody tee off from the 16th green. And so I saw some great things. I saw Charlie Hoffman. I saw Jordan Spieth birdie. I saw all those things. But I missed the other 17 holes. If you asked me what happened, I'd have to say, I don't know. I'll have to go look it up. If you asked me, what did Patrick Reed do on 13, which is on Amen's Corner? If you would ask me what he had done, I'd say, well, he birdie. How did he do it? I don't know. I wasn't there. I heard about it. Now, here's what's interesting about that. My master's experience is real and genuine, and it had a huge impact on me. And you all just, I just shared that with you, and you're all on the edge of your seats wanting to hear more about the master's. <laughs> but I only saw one hole out of 18. I only saw so many golfers come through. I miss so much of it, and I'd have to go back, or I'd have to ask somebody else who was there about all those other parts of the story. But that doesn't make my story any less 
real. It's my story. It's my experience. And you were engaged in hearing it. I don't know what to say and how to explain it. People ask me, what was it like? I've tried to narrow it down to three or four things. Here's what was so good about it. Here's what I enjoyed about it. I may have said things wrong as I was going along in the story. And I don't have all the answers what happened on all the other 17 holes. But yet I can say, what a great experience. If you ever get the chance, go. So some other observations. We live in a world filled with people who are searching. We're wired for worship. And we all choose something that we're going to worship. And for many people in our culture, in our world, we're worshiping the wrong thing. I just read this last week. This, this, was, this was just, as a pastor, this is just, just crippling. 80% of people do not attend worship. 80%. That means it's no longer just church has moved from the mainstream to outliers. You're all outliers here this morning. You're on the far extreme. Yet we live in a world filled with people who are wired to worship. We need to care enough to be engaged. Paul said in that scripture, uh, our Acts said that Paul was deeply troubled. Literally, that means his spirit was stirred. Now, it could be that he was upset in what he saw. It could be that he was angry. If he was, uh, it could be that he was interested in a debate. Or it could mean that some other emotion stirred in him. But it means that it stirred him. He cared enough. See, the assumption that we often make is, well, as we look at our neighbors, as our coworkers, as the people that we spend time with, if things are going well, and Pastor Steve said this months ago in a message, and it's stuck with me, if things are going well with uh, uh, someone's, got, someone's got a great career, and they've got good neighborhood, or they live in a good neighborhood, and they've got a, a good marriage, and they've got good kids, then why in the world would they need Jesus? Everything seems to be going so well, and that's why it's such difficult work and why it's so important that we're involved in telling our stories because someone could then say, I didn't know life could be so much better. So this is the reason for this little outpost of faith that we have here on Sunday mornings. Because there are 80% of the people living in the homes around us do not go to worship, but they do worship something. And I pray that that stirs our spirits and that we are deeply troubled because this is really hard work. And I've used this illustration a few different times and I have time to use it this morning. If we're selling pizza, if we were selling pizza, our only marketing would be, hey, give pizza a try. Give our pizza a try because we think we have really good pizza and everybody eats pizza. So give pizza a try. And we think once you try our pizza, you're going to love our pizza. And you're going to want to come back and get more pizza. It's a great marketing plan. But what if we're trying to invite people to our pizza place and they've never had pizza before in their life ever? 
or they were forced to eat pizza when they were younger. And they vowed, I will never eat pizza again. No matter what you say it's going to taste like, I'll never eat it again. Or maybe they used to eat pizza and they went to their local pizza place for decades and then they had a bad experience while eating that pizza. And the pizza place said, we don't want you ever to come back again. Or they felt as if the pizza place were telling them, we don't want you to ever come back again. Or what if they believe that all pizza tastes the same? No matter where it's made, no matter what pizza place is making it, it all tastes the same, and we've already tried pizza once, and we know we don't like it. See, 80% of our community doesn't eat pizza. So how do we convince them that they need to try our pizza? It's really hard work. And you all know that. Some of you are getting up early once a month, coming here, and you're bringing boxes in. And I love that Steve mentioned it's spring, and you're right, we should have cheered louder because we had 13 Sundays in our first quarter, and of those 13 Sundays, it rained nine of them. Or snowed which is still rain, but it's just frozen rain, right? And so you guys worked hard through that, all right? You carry equipment inside, you set up equipment, you travel further to church for some of you, and for what reason? Your spirit was stirred. You were deeply troubled. And I want to encourage you to not let your spirit be satisfied because it is making a difference Someone uh, emailed me who had been here. Uh, uh, actually, they're here on Easter. And they said, Herman, it's a good time to catch up on calendaring and grocery listing. And I know none of, you, none of you do that here. But that's how they felt at their previous church. And concerned at my disconnect from God and my church community. And then this person wrote, I was intrigued to find out why Easter matters. And now I know. So for those of you who came on Easter, set up all this stuff, did all of that work. That email is for you. Another person wrote on Facebook a few months ago, I can't find a place where I connect, where the things said on Sunday morning make sense to my life. She was responding to having been here at this campus. And so for those of you who set up that Sunday, did all the work, dealt with the sound or tech issues or whatever may have happened because we have the sound or tech issue du jour on Sundays here. <laughs> Thank you. That post, that comment was for you. See, message, how we tell our story, that's my responsibility. I need to make it comfortable. We need to be welcoming. We need to be, and, uh, we need to have it, uh, uh, we need to be relevant. We need to be understandable. We need to be accessible when we tell our story and when we tell our story on a Sunday morning. The response is the person's responsibility. So, like in Paul's case, some will laugh, some will be intrigued, and some will follow. But the result is God's responsibility. Like most things with God, it's not always seen immediately. And so for me, that means I want to work harder. That means I need, but instead I need to trust more. Because God's responsible for the results. Francis Schaeffer said this, it's up on the screen. 
Each generation of the church in each setting has the responsibility of communicating the gospel in understandable terms, considering the language and thought forms of that setting. We need to engage the culture so that we can have a fight, uh, have a voice, not fight the culture, but engage the culture. So that's why relationships with our community is so important. That's why we do things like an egg hunt. I don't personally like egg hunts. Don't tell anybody outside this room, especially if they're little. I don't like egg hunts, all right? I usually don't like people who are little either, right? I just, I just all right? I, I just don't want to do with them. Hi, nice to meet you, you know? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's not true, but... Uh, <laughs> But meeting people outside the church and in our towns, that's our responsibility. Because if we had the best pizza in town, they're not coming here to try our pizza. We have to go get, take our pizza out there to them. That's why things like Mount Laurel Community Cleanup Day is such a great event. This is not something we're doing. This is something Mount Laurel Community already does. So what would it look like if a group of people from Hope Church showed up, did whatever it is they asked us to do, Adopt the street, clean up the park. I don't know what we're going to do. But what would happen if we then got in a conversation with somebody who doesn't attend here? And they said, who are you? Do you live in Mount Laurel? Some of us might say no. As a matter of fact, we, I don't. Well, why are you here? Because we care about Mount Laurel and we care about you. That's engaging the culture. Uh, we have something coming up, and you're going to hear about a, a lot in, in the next, uh, actually starting next week probably, is Mount Laurel Softball Family Day. We found out that there's an event where all the softball families get together, and they have like a carnival, and we heard a thousand people attend. Yeah, yeah. And because we sponsored, I was supposed to bring the t-shirt, I forgot. We sponsored a softball team this year, all right? And uh, because we sponsored a softball team, we get to go. So we're going to go do a little carnival thing or some kind of game thing for all those little ones that I don't like, and I'll act like I like them. I'm really good at acting like I like them, right? And why will we do that? Because one day, possibly, one of the people we meet on that day may be saying, you know what, I think I want to try pizza again. And my kid really liked the pizza they served at that place. And they seem like people who make really good pizza. And so I'm going to give them a try. So we'll assign us for that. Next, next week. So I want you to do this last little thing as we wrap up here. I want you to remember back to the time before you knew Jesus. It may be for some of you, you might have to go back decades. Try to remember what it was like before you were part of a community of faith. And it may be this community of faith, or it may have been another community of faith. But try to remember back before that. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like to walk into a church or to try to figure out how to find a church if you were in that process? And here's what I know is probably true. Someone took a step toward you. And someone took a risk. And someone probably engaged you in a, engaged you in a conversation or invited you to something. And the single greatest gift that you have received and that you can give to another person is an introduction to the God who created them, the God they've been wired to worship. And it's really hard work. And it's really important work. And I recognize more so than I ever have in my life, it's an incredible spiritual 
endeavor. Now, I, this was one of the oddest things. I've been keeping a journal since we decided to begin this campus, and I have this journal, and I write in it. The only pause was when we were in Haiti. I started writing about Haiti because I was in Haiti for a week, but otherwise, it's only things that I have thought and learned and had to confess to God uh, about my thoughts as, uh, as we've been doing this. Now, here's what's interesting, is that during this process, as we've been planning and preparing worship services, as we've been designing systems for portable stuff and all those things, as we've been purchasing equipment and making marketing plans, all very tactile things, I became more and more aware that this is a spiritual enterprise and that there are spiritual forces in our favor And there are spiritual forces working against us. And I know that sounds really like real. That's that's my heart. That's what I realized. This This is real hard work. And it's not just about setting up equipment. And it's not just about putting things in place. And it's not about getting our brand out and all those things. Is that we need God on our side. Because there are forces working against us. There's no wrong way for you to tell your story or your experience. It's really hard. And it's a spiritual work in our neighborhoods, in our church. At your workplace, you are the church in action. And in the midst, surrounded by idols all around us, we get to make a difference. So I want us to pray together, and, and then after we pray, as you do this, I want you to, uh, I, I want you to during the prayer time and also during, um, uh, during communion, I want you to reflect on that time that I just shared with you, or that I asked you to share, remember what it was like before. And then I want you to think about men and women and people that you know that you come in contact with, whether it be family members, work people, uh, those kinds of relationships, and I want you to to, to not make a list, but just have them in your mind as we spend these next few moments together. So let's pray together.